work will be confined to the roof of an auditorium. BBC Radio 4 News. There were strong words for Russia's President Putin at Westminster today, as we'll hear in Today in Parliament in half an hour. But first, the broadcaster and writer John Ronson continues his six-part series. This week, the programme looks at the moment when everything that we once believed turns out to be an illusion. John Ronson on Waking Up from a Dream. Ten years ago, the comedy writer Graham Linehan was in an unfamiliar hotel. He'd drunk too much and had eaten bad mussels. I was lying in bed and, you know, it was one of those nights where we went to bed around three or four and I hit the pillow and you're flat out and you don't realise at that stage that when you get up you're probably going to throw up, you know, and with the muscles I had as well, it just wasn't a good mixture. But um, I was woken maybe an hour later by lights coming on in a kind of... in a kind of vertical climb. And shining into the room, lighting up the room. And I just thought it was a UFO. I absolutely thought it was a UFO. And I was going, oh, like that. <laughs> In a kind of semi-religious ecstasy of, oh my God, this is it. This is it. And what it was, was the car park across the road coming, opening for the day and all the lights on every level turning on. <laughs> but I never got such a fright. And of course, I was delirious from, as I was about to find out, pre-vomiting, you know, from <laughs> nausea. So it was, so I was like, oh my God, I'm about to be taken into the mothership. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it, that was some night. For Graham, the fantasy lasted only a moment. For other people, it can be decades before they see sense. This is a programme about people who believed in crazy things for years and years, and then, suddenly, they woke up. I went to Mexico and Puerto Rico in 1998. I was confronted with these stories, a four- to five-foot-high biped with spikes up its anus back. People say this thing is the goat sucker, Chupacabra. Why was it given the name goat sucker? Did it suck goats? Uh -huh. It was given the name goat sucker because people saw this creature at the same time as something had been attacking their livestock and sucking the blood out, and people put two and two together. I went there first time looking for a weird vampiric creature that got out of flying saucers, and I was convinced it was something paranormal. This is Jonathan Downs. He's Britain's leading cryptozoologist. Jonathan spent his life chasing paranormal beasts. He once spent months on the trail of a half-man, half-owl that was spotted hovering over a church in Cornwall. He's had a team in Mongolia attempting to catch the elusive death worm, a creature, it is said, that spits yellow venom and electrocutes people. And then there was the goat sucker. It was only when I went to Puerto Rico that I found what their goats are. Their goats are smaller than our pygmy goats. They're tiny little things. The goat sucker turned out to be a mongoose. Have there been any others like that? Yes, there is one. It was only about four years ago. I was contacted by somebody I know up in the northeast. There had been attacks on two wallabies at an animal sanctuary. Wallabies is just not the first thing that comes to your no. mind. If, 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 if animals are going to get mutilated by some kind of 
other dimensionary yeah. entity, you don't think wallabies, you think, well, you think castle. Because it had the most surprising attacks on wallabies. Considering this for such cuddly little creatures, they said the bodies had been drained of blood, the heads had been cut off with surgical precision using some sort of laser. There were no footsteps in the paddock, and there was no clues to who could have done this. So we went up there, I liaised with the local police. We managed to get hold of one of the bodies, which was so full of blood, it wasn't drained blood at all. The so-called laser beam cuts, it was so jagged, you could see that it had been actually sawn off with cuts of either a machete or what I think was one of those hatchets you can buy at B&Q. The wallaby mutilator turned out to be local hooligans. Jonathan has begun to think that maybe the reason why he hasn't found any paranormal monsters these past years is because they don't exist. What will he do now? It's August and someone called Richard has just been in touch with Jonathan to say he's sighted a strange monster on Lake Windermere. I interview the witness. It was on a nice calm sunny day, July. We were travelling in the north end of the lake, travelling up toward Ambleside. The surface was nice and calm and suddenly I saw this uh, shape surface and then dive down again. It seemed to be moving very fast. It was quite large. I'd say probably about four or five foot. And what did you think when you saw it? Well, <laughs> I gave out a few expletives to the wife and uh, I was uh, a little bit concerned about the boat, actually, because it was so large. <laughs> but it, it did leave this very large disturbance in the water. There was a time when Jonathan would have immediately assumed this to be a mythical beast, but now he no longer believes in things like that. Now Jonathan believes that what Richard saw was an eel a freakishly big eel. If we can prove that there's something bigger than it should be in Windermere, then it is the first step towards probably the biggest zoological discovery of the century so far. Now, the scientific establishment has always been adamant that eels cannot grow and do not grow more than just over four foot, and, and even that's very, very, very unusual. Here, for the first time, there is a burgeoning evidence that there are eels regularly of six to eight feet. If we can prove that eels grow to that size, then we are, I believe, well on the way to solving the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster and its relatives all over the world. And so a team of six cryptozoologists and I travel in convoy to Windermere to hunt for an oversized eel. We keep in touch on the journey via walkie-talkie and pass the time playing guessing games. Divers, 
we'll be using boats, we'll be using sonar, we'll be using underwater photography. I'm in process at the moment of, I can't go into too many details, but I'm negotiating with one of actually the Royal Navy's contractors to see if I can borrow stuff away from the war effort to be able to get a mini-submarine remote-controlled submersible with cameras. The implications of this go far beyond what's happening here in the Lake District. We arrive late and hook up with a local diver called Kevin. He shows us a map of Windermere and Coniston waters. Both of these waters actually are like water in the basement from the Ice Age. Yeah. It, it never moves. Yeah. Well, I was a large eel, that's where I'd be living. Yeah. And then the media arrives, a local television crew. Is there a monster in Windermere or is it just a myth? Well, a team of experts are here today to try and find out. I'm joined by... John Downs, John, what will the you... TV crew seems more interested in monsters than eels, but I'm not. We spend so much of our lives chasing fantasies we can miss out on real-life wonders. If there really is a very big eel down there, or even a pretty big eel, it'll be like finding real magic. I go to bed excited about what adventures day two might bring. Day two. Well, their sonar's not working. Some sort of batteries. Um, John's getting very cross with some local TV crew that's turned up. Personally, I'm ready to just go and find the eel. I mean, it seems like we spent all day talking about finding the eel and no time actually finding it. And it's now dusk, practically, which apparently plus side is that that's when eels are more likely to come out at dusk because uh, they, they don't like the light. I mean, they're never going to find this big eel if they just carry on you know, twitting around like grannies. OK, are we ready? I've been awake for nearly 12 hours. Finally, we're getting on a boat. We are now getting on a boat. Driving the boat is Kevin, the local diver, who will soon be going under to hunt for the eel. I'm going to go under, I'm going to bait up some of the sacks, leave, anchor them to the bottom, leave a boy on the top so I know whereabouts they are. I'm going to come back up for an hour, give the eels a chance to come in and have a look at see what's in the sack. What does it feel like when you're down there? <laughs> As your head drops below the water, it, it's a completely different world. Deep, dark waters, you're always conscious that maybe you'll swim into a creature of a large size. It's also the excitement of diving, knowing you make a mistake, it could be your last mistake. I look out across Coniston waters, thinking rueful thoughts about the dangers of the deep. I feel glad that we're in Kevin's strong, experienced hands. Whoa, then Kevin crashes the boat. Oh dear, what's happening? I think the boat has uh, stopped working. The boat won't move. It's grounded. And so we paddle to the bank. Kevin gives me a lift on his shoulders so I don't get my trousers wet. And then he puts on his wetsuit. Will he find an eel? 
Find out later in the programme. I'm at the home of the hypnotist Paul McKenna. We're chatting away about how some people are inclined to replace rational fears with irrational ones. It's like my son, I say. He's worried that bears will invade the house, but he doesn't look left and right when he's crossing the road. Exactly, says Paul McKenna. More people are killed by donkeys than by aeroplanes, yet nobody has donkey phobias. Exactly, I say. What a lovely man, I think. Three days pass. I'm having supper with my wife Elaine. Isn't it funny, I muse out loud, that more people are killed by donkeys than by aeroplanes? Elaine looks up from her plate. That's rubbish, she says. Who told you that? Paul McKenna, I say. Well, it's total nonsense, she says. Paul McKenna would have no reason to lie, I say defiantly. Well, look it up on Google if you're so sure of yourself, says Elaine sarcastically. But I don't want to. A good person wouldn't cross-check on Google what a friend says to them in small talk. You're just defending him because he's famous Paul McKenna, says Elaine. OK, I snarl. I'll look it up on Google. This statement has been plaguing us for several years, writes the American Donkey and Mule Society. It is totally false. Help us to dispel this awful rumour mill factoid. See, says Elaine in my ear, it was rubbish. Yes, I say, but Paul McKenna's no fantasist. That's the important thing. He's a good man proved wrong on this one point. He believed in urban legend. There's no shame in that. No shame at all, I think. Most of us slip in and out of believing in nonsense all the time. But it isn't often that a well-known paranormal investigator like Jonathan crosses the great divide to become a sceptic. I only know of it happening once before to a woman called Sue Blackmore. Sue first became a believer while she was a student at Oxford. I'd agreed to go up to a friend's room to smoke some dope and listen to some music and generally chill out. And I was tired. I'd been staying up till four in the morning and getting up for nine o'clock lectures. And, you know, I sat there in this music going down a tunnel towards a light. And somebody said, where are you, Sue? And I was as though I thought, oh, I, I, I know where I am, I'm in Vicky's room, and ah, and it all became clear, and I was on the ceiling looking down. And my friend said to me, you're having astral projection, wow! And, you know... Were you not just, you were stoned, right, or...? That, I'm sure that contributed. I think that helped uh, to be more relaxed, to get into this tunnel, but it became very much like a classic near-death experience. I had, apart from the life review, I had the whole works, and it really culminated in a, a kind of a mystical experience. Went on for a couple of hours. Were you dying? No, but I think some weird things were happening in my very tired and slightly stoned brain. But at the time, you see, that experience convinced me that I was not my body, that I, the conscious me, was a spirit or a soul or an astral body or something, and that I would live forever and that I could travel around without my body. And I just decided I'm going to be a parapsychologist. I'm going to prove all these closed-minded scientists wrong. So that one experience set off the whole thing. With your tears Got Before Sue threw herself completely into the paranormal world, she did an experiment to try and prove that she really had astral projected that night. 
during the experience, I didn't stay by the ceiling. I went up above the roofs and I travelled all around Oxford and I went to all kinds of places. Right. And so I went to look at the roofs of the building I was in and the gutters were not the kind of old-fashioned metal, ornate sort of things I'd imagine. They were just ordinary bog-standard plastic from MFI, you know. So, <laughs> so I was a bit wow. disappointed so, by that. And then I thought, well, you know, in the astral world, things are not quite the same as in the physical world. And I somehow justified it along with my belief system. Sue started to believe in all sorts of crazy things. Ghosts. Yes. What, what about aliens living, living among us, adopting human form? So that You're asking the very difficult, fringy ones, of course, because it's easy for me to answer the main ones that I yeah. believed. Well, you believed in tarot and, uh, you know, all kind of psychic stuff. Telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, psychopanitis, uh, all those things. Did you believe in remote influencing? Did you think that you could, uh, yes. kill, you, you could, you could kind of influence events from afar? I certainly did, and I spent quite a lot of time experimenting with it and trying to make it happen. I managed to get myself to do a PhD and got a place at Surrey University to do research on telepathy and clairvoyance, and I'd done lots of experiments, and they kept not working, and they kept not working. And I kept saying, well, if only I improve this and I do this, then it'll work. And at some point, I remember lying in the bath at my house in Guildford and thinking, well, maybe that's not true, but if that's not true, I'm sure that that's the Liz, and, well, hang on a minute, but there haven't any evidence of that. And just suddenly I thought, what if none of it's true? And it sort of, a whole lot of things just really collapsed in that bath time, you know? You became like James Randi or someone like that, or Richard Dawkins, a very famous skeptic. Yeah, I, I call myself rent-a-skeptic. I really enjoyed it for a long time, going on all those TV programmes. You know, there's a hundred people who've seen a ghost and Sue Blackmore to say it's all in the mind, or a hundred people who've been abducted by aliens and Sue Blackmore to say it's sleep paralysis. It was fun, it was interesting, and I felt I was doing some good by explaining the psychological basis of some of these things. But in the end, I got sick to death of it because it never gets anywhere. People just go on absolutely wanting these things to be true, and I got very frustrated with it. And so now you, you're sort of out of both worlds, aren't you? Yes, I just couldn't take the strain any longer. But I would say one thing. It was when I was being sceptical that I got loads of hate mail from believers, and not the other way around. When I was a believer, although I wasn't so well known then, but I, you know, sceptics don't send hate mail in the same way that believers do. Isn't no. that sad? Sleep in the Sue Blackmore When my son was a baby and I took him out in his buggy, stranger after stranger would lean in to smile at him or pull comfortingly funny faces. It was like a conspiracy of adults to trick him into thinking the world was a lovely, safe, funny place. I suppose that's the first dream we wake up from. Take the childhood of documentary maker Doug Block. I think it was, for the most part, a happy childhood. You know, it was one of those safe, protected suburban bubbles where, you know, it was kind of happy, carefree existence. Safe. What were your parents like? The usual, ordinary, boring parents. So, everything was normal until your mother died. I guess a better word is uneventful, but my mother fell ill a few years ago and quite quickly died. It was pneumonia and she had all signs of recovering and then at the last minute, boom. So that was a real shock. And then about three months later, my father called from Florida, which is a few thousand miles away from New York, to announce he was living with his secretary from 
35 years ago. So that was another shock. They got married and then proceeded to sell the family house so that he could move down with her permanently. And that was, you know, yet another shock. And didn't you ask your father, do you miss your wife? Yeah, he, he just took this deep breath and uh, said no. It wasn't a loving association, is how he put it. And, you know, it surprised me because I always thought my parents had this really terrific marriage. You know, not that they were happy, 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 but that they were very compatible. And they did everything together, and they never fought. And so they surprised not just me, but everyone. Everybody thought that. Doug had many questions. Had his parents really never loved each other? Had it all been an illusion for the benefit of the children? Doug's job was to shoot wedding videos, and so he filmed his father's wedding in Florida. He filmed the moment his father kissed his new bride. It was a long kiss, and it was a passionate kiss. I mean, it was like lip lock. I, you know, I've, I've looked at that many times in the editing room, and it was, it was a truly, truly shocking and disturbing moment for me as a son and as a cameraman because I was literally two feet away from them videotaping the wedding. And how long did I, they kiss for? Well, they I timed it ultimately 12 seconds. Yeah. 11 and a half seconds longer than I'd ever seen him kiss my mother. I mean, they used to peck on the cheek, mm. you know, and that was, that was about it. So, um... And of course, the last thing in the world you want to see your parents as, I mean, I can barely even say the words, is sexual beings. You just, you don't want that. No, you don't want that at any age, but at 83, you really don't want that. I remember looking in the editing room at the footage, and behind my father and Kitty is my daughter, who I guess was 13 at the time, and she just has her mouth hanging open, and her eyes are wide. <laughs> She's just staring. And so when you discover that your father had been harboring this secret love for his secretary, Kitty, all these years, you started to look into your mother's journals and diaries. Right. Are there any lines in the diary that just jump out at you? Lines of a personal nature that you think... Yeah. Well, the line I'm thinking of in particular is one that goes, how must most marriages be if everyone thinks ours is a good one? It was hard for me to look at the diaries on a number of levels. There's the personal level of how much do I really want to know about my parents, especially their secret longings. And it's a lot easier to just be into the sort of, you know, old American 1950s desexualized fantasy of the whole thing then. Oh, sure. Than to delve. I would of never course. delve. I honestly, really, I, I, I'm not going to delve even slightly into well, anything to do with my parents ever. I wouldn't have delved, but, you know, it was a combination of circumstances. I mean, God knows the last thing I wanted to do was delve into that. When you look back, are you glad that you know the truth about your parents or do you wish you hadn't known? Oh, I'm glad because it's, you know, I feel closer to both of them. I feel like I have come to an understanding of who my mother was in an adult sense. You know, I'm not really disturbed by what I found out. I mean, she was human, you know? I mean, it's just odd thinking of your parents as human. You know, you don't think of them as individuals with their own hopes and dreams and longings and disappointments. Um, you don't want to think of them as being unhappy. Doug Block. The documentary he made about his parents is called 51 Birch Street, 
We're back at Coniston Waters, Windermere, and Jonathan Downs is excited about the possibility of finding a big eel. I think this is potentially the most important project that the CFZ and me personally have ever done. Do you really think this is something bigger than all the others? Yes, I do. The implications of this on the world stage... Because it could be proof not only of this, but of the Loch Ness Monster, of all the monster sightings in Swedish lakes and lakes all over Northern Europe. It could be the answer to all of those mysteries. And Kevin is submerging. As we wait for Kevin to lay the bait sacks and emerge, Jonathan and the other cryptozoologists discuss the events of the day. We shouldn't have done the boat. And I should have told the bloody media people this morning to get stuffed and do it, and do it my way or not at all. Because I am tired, stressed, want something to eat a stiff drink and go to bed. Well, the bait's only just been laid, and Kevin reckons the, the eels need at least an hour to um, notice it. Why did it take so long to lay the bait? You know, wetsuits. You know, they take time to get on. Ah, it's OK. I hope we're going to get some underwater pictures anyway, even if just pictures at the bottom of the lake. I'm beginning to lose hope about seeing an eel. Yeah. I don't know what I'll do if we don't see an eel. <laughs> Kevin! Yeah. Any luck? Nothing at all. Not a thing? Not even one. That's a bit disappointing. What was that supposed to mean? <laughs> no, I just said maybe for you. As in, we're better than being disappointed for there being no eels. Yeah, but I'm not disappointed. <laughs> in the end, we find no eels at all. Not even an ordinary-sized one. Are you a bit disappointed, though, John? I'm a pragmatist. It would have, yes, of course, a little bit of me disappointed. It would be lovely if he'd come out with um, a four or five foot eel. Well, any about. eel. Well, yeah, but I'm convinced more than ever before that there are bloody great eels down in the depths of uh, Coniston Water and Lake Windermere. It's very cold and dark, isn't yeah. it? The trouble is, eels, like most cold-blooded animals, get torpid in cold weather. A bit torpid myself. Kevin says he may have seen no eels, but he did spot a pike perch. The thing to ask Kevin when he comes back is, were these things hanging around the bait sack? I mean, I can ask him now. Kevin! You know the uh, pike perch that you saw? Was it hanging around the bait sack? I couldn't actually find the bait sack, Maybe that's where all the eels were. Now that's again. Okay, we now know we can't find the bait sacks in the night in the dark. There are no guidebooks on how to do this. And we're doing this on a shoestring with homemade equipment. And eventually we are going to find one of these things. Then eventually we'll find the Mongolian deathworm. I bet you if you do find the Mongolian deathworm, it's not going to be spitting electricity. Well, duh. It's probably not even poisonous. Probably not even a worm. Of course it's not a worm. <laughs> silly, silly boy. It's late and cold and we've found nothing. 
This program is supposed to be about how good it is to stop believing in fantasies and live instead in the real world. But as we head back to the hotel, cold and tired, a part of me thinks, if we were going to stay up so late finding nothing, I wish we hadn't found an amazing monster instead of not finding a boring eel. That would have been an adventure. Life is short. Maybe sometimes it's more fun to not wake up from the dream. John Ronson on Waking Up From A Dream was written and presented by John Ronson. The producer was Simon Jacobs. It was a unique production for BBC Radio 4. Next week, John will be looking at uncontrollable responses. Now, just before we head to Westminster, let's take a look ahead to this Sunday. Yoko on John. Well, he was a very, very strong man, extremely so. And uh, I just never ventured to try to change him or anything. I was there loving him, that's all. And enjoying the situation with, you know, being with him. I think that he was dying to be like that way before he met me. And he just became himself. Yoko Ono on Desert Island Discs on Sunday morning at 11.15. This is BBC Radio 4, where now we head to Westminster, where there were strong words for Russia's President Putin, today in Parliament. Order! Order! Good evening, this is Alicia McCarthy at Westminster. Tonight, as world leaders prepare for the G8 summit, there's condemnation of President Putin's threat to point nuclear missiles at the West. Get your human rights in order and drop this aggressive, hate-filled language against the values of Europe and the values of Western democracies. A Conservative MP calls for a change in the rules on abortion to require women to have counselling, and she highlights the case of a young woman who said... I had the pregnancy... To